<clears throat> Any questions this morning? sensations. Um, do you lean forward a little bit and try to <clears throat> figure out exactly what the specific sensation you're feeling is is about, like disentangling it that way? Or do you lean back a little bit and just mm, give up trying to trying to figure out what's what's happening and wait for whatever's <clears throat> Do you mean physical sensations? Yeah. Okay. Did everyone hear? Okay. I think that if um, you look closely at how you um, experience physical sensations, often uh, initially we might actually move down with our eyes through the body and find that place with our eyes. <laughs> uh, and over time you'll start to see that um, there's a difference between going down with your eyes and going down just with the attention without using that part of the body to look. Uh, and it takes some finesse and practice in meditation to be able to drop your attention down <laughs> or over or up uh, to really go into a sensation without necessarily leaning into it. But the attention does feel initially like it moves to that place. Um, and often, initially, there's a kind of tension in that. Uh, there's another way to work with sensation, which is like you described, you kind of kind of settle back and let whatever that sensation is reveal itself without trying too hard to penetrate it. I would say that um, when sensations last a while, it's possible to notice that we would do both. That you would sort of settle back and notice it more from a distance and know it from a distance. And then you can see if you can bring your attention into that sensation um, you know, really meet it with the attention softly. Step back, look at it, go into it. Step back, look at it, go into it. Uh, and sometimes it'll feel like those two ways of perceiving will come together. It doesn't mean that that's how it's supposed to be, but there are times when it'll feel like um, you just kind of know it and you penetrate it at the same time. I, in some ways, if it feels like by trying to penetrate it, the attention is getting too tight or rigid, I would much more recommend just settling back and let it kind of come to your attention. If it feels like you're settling back and it's coming to your attention and it feels very vague and you're kind of feeling like you're missing it, I would tend to kind of move, move more into it. The balance of moving in and out, though, is important. And in terms of um, 
actually knowing what a sensation is, <laughs> you first have to be able to experience it to know it. Uh, you can't um, know something intuitively until you can really be uh, immersed in it in a way. Uh, so if we try to know what a sensation is w- without just giving it a lot of time and space and letting it come, the most important thing is that experience of it without really being, putting a word on it. Because the Dharma is ultimately wordless. And if you miss it, if you miss the word and it just passes by, that's fine because the experience is the most important thing. And if you feel like you're trying to figure it out, it's actually gone by the time you're in the place of trying to figure it out. It's moving. Uh, so picking up the, the sensation in an experiential level is the most important part of it. I think it is a paradox, you know, the sense of um, finding that inner balance between wisdom tells me I'm nothing, which, which leads toward uh, a mind that doesn't cling to anything. But that mind that doesn't cling to anything is still living in a body on this planet, uh, and, and the relative level, in terms of us all living here, uh, there's an incredible interconnectedness and dependence. So there's both. There's the love tells me I'm everything, and then there's wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And those two, um, at times, will feel very different. At times they can come together and they won't feel like um, so different. <laughs> I guess the way I would say when it comes together, it's like when we really um, are free from aversion and attachment and the mind isn't clinging and there's a sense of things just arising and passing away, there's a feeling of interconnectedness when that is being experienced. In terms of the level that you're describing where um, I know a big part of the healing for me was being able to let myself need people. Because uh, when I was very young I, I had to um, act like I didn't. I had to let go of wanting anything. Uh, that was much safer. Uh, that There's a process of, of a lot of us, I think, 
letting ourselves really experience that sense of wanting someone, uh, that that's okay, that it's, it's uh, on one level, if you're choosing to live in the human world, that sense of um, connecting to people in that way is, is healing. And that, in terms of um, watching the mind with this, or watching the heart with this, for me, whenever I would watch that um, wanting somebody come up, in the initial years of practice, I would push it away, because I would think that that was wrong, or attachment. And it was also partly my conditioning to not, not want to experience that, because it was, I had shut down to that when I finally let that experience appear of wanting, <laughs> I thought it was going to kill me, you know, because it was so, again, it was something I wouldn't let myself feel. So when it first appeared, uh, it was extremely painful. And then when I started being able to let it be just like a sound coming and going, and it was just needing someone, uh, it's just like, any moment. It's like being with a breath, it's like being with a sound, it's just being with that needing. And it comes and goes. And it's okay. There's so many levels that happen in the practice. (laughs) And you kind of hear all these different ways that the uh, freedom is being expressed. Uh, And there's a lot of levels that freedom is happening on. So on the level of, that you just described in terms of wanting someone, that's a real liberation when you haven't been able to have that experience. It's really liberating to be able to have that experience. I have an announcement around um, people writing each other notes, and I don't Any questions this morning? Feeling, uh, feeling a, a pounding seems like the touch door. Feeling a hot burning sensation also feels like the touch door. Um, there are times when breath is felt uh, by sound, like the sound, the sound <coughs> up here and then down here, and that's the sight door. So, can, can you can you feel anything in the sight door, or should I throw it in the garbage? Or you know, what, what to do with that sense of, of um, identifying, feeling sensations. Oh, I can feel the breath rising and falling. Well, I just have to make a picture of rise and fall of the abdomen. So, mm-hmm. do you understand? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't throw any of it into the garbage. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, the most important thing is just to notice how it's happening. And so if you're... Many times um, we're very visual, you know, we're, we're a very visual culture, uh, so that we're noticing sensations actually um, through seeing. So that any sense of our body... At this point in the retreat, I think that's what's so interesting is you start to see that a lot of sense of our body actually comes through seeing uh, and that that's okay. That if you're noticing that that's how the um, mindfulness is noticing, then you notice that that's how it's being noticed. You don't try to change it, ideally. And the same with hearing the breath or um, actually the touch door. It's just letting it happen how it happens. And what's powerful is as you get more aware, you'll notice it happening in many ways rather than just, you know, oh, this isn't just... My sense of who I am and sense of body and identification with body isn't happening just through the the, uh, touch door. It's great. Did everyone hear the question? Um, <laughs> I don't know if I can <laughs> do the whole thing, but uh, she's in an interview yesterday. We were talking about um, her going deeper as the retreat is going on, and also that there's resistance to that going on. And she tends to have a history of at the end of retreats a lot of stu- a lot of depth coming up at the end and just at the very end and then after the retreat, and she's wondering if that intensity is so skillful, right? Is it? Well, that it's sort of spilling over. I'm imagining myself like at Christmas parties and things. Right. One of the um, interesting, interesting aspects of Heartbreak Hill is uh, fear, anxiety coming up about what's going to happen afterwards or what's going to happen at the end. And that, partly that's part of the deepening that will happen is facing that fear. It, there's such a momentum to being here for so long that you can't possibly not have depth happen. You know, you won't be able to, you won't be able to stop that, but you'll, you'll be able to, like, step in the clutch like you would of a car and to back off and open up and to um, regulate and pace it as much as you can. 
and that that's what's so important is to know that you have enough sense of the of the end for yourself and you don't have to step on the gas for some people right now stepping on the gas will be right and it's important that you do that. You have the energy, you have the balance, uh, go for it. Other people, you know, it's like to, to step in the gas now and then walk out because <laughs> you're so open isn't, isn't wise. And so it's more, it's, I don't necessarily think it's stopping as much as, you know, stepping in the clutch so that the momentum carries and you'll go deep even if you did that. You know, but I think underneath it is to be careful of the of getting caught in the fear, because that that will be coming up a lot, and you won't even really know that that's what it is. And it's okay to just uh, if you can open to that experience of seeing the the mind jump to the future uh, and all the thoughts around it, and see if you can pull all that projection back and just be with here, sitting here open your eyes and, and just see if you can be afraid. And that's deep. When one, do, when one does that, it'll, it'll, the fear will just come and go. <laughs> you won't have to get caught in it for the, all of the retreat. Yeah. Um, no, I'll further that by adding an obsessional fantasy 972,214, mm-hmm. which is the snow comes up over the windows. <laughs> <laughs> Every plane in New England is brown. <laughs> it's funny, but that's what I'm sitting here right now. Right, right. It's fear. Right. My God will never get on. <laughs> and for some people that'll be a pleasant feeling (laughs) and other people that'll be a horrific (laughs) feeling (laughs) it's the same thing that I was just talking about that when you notice that that part of this part of the retreat is that'll come up. And if you think it shouldn't come up, if you think that the anxiety or the fear shouldn't come up, um, then it's, you, won't, you won't really go deeper in the practice. But if you can see that the intensity, all that's happening is that the intensity is just going up. And that, so that obsessional fantasy, in whatever way it, com- it comes up, will come up. Um, Better that it snows now than later. <laughs> but usually, in all the years, I think I've been around this retreat for many, many years. Since 1978, I think I've only not been here once. Um, I've never known people not to be able to get out of here. So, <laughs> hmm Thank you. 
Mm-hmm. So what is the question? Mm-hmm. Well, it's okay to spend the whole sitting with the deer if that's what's coming up. I mean, it, uh, it's, that's, the mind, that's the practice at that point. Uh, it's so ironic for all of us to be sitting here opening and getting more sensitive and vulnerable. <laughs> you know, the, the, the juxtaposition of over a hundred people here doing this and listening to gunshots um, it's a very strange juxtaposition because it's really like a war. Luckily they're not hunting humans, you know, but they're hunting beings that we really love and care about. It's not an easy thing to have balance with, but the, I think that usually initially, if, if the impact of the a sound of the gunshot uh, comes as a painful feeling in the heart or an ache, usually compassion is helpful. And it requires compassion for yourself because in that moment one is suffering. It requires compassion for the deer and compassion for the hunter. You know, it's like it requires that um, unconditional empathy if one can't do that, usually equanimity practice is helpful. Uh, that helps balance. And often if you can, I think mostly the compassion is helpful, though once one can really open to that every part of that um, situation is suffering. <laughs> There's no one free of suffering in that, in the situation. Then one can come back to being mindful of hearing. You know, that, that it's, it's also just the sound that's arising and passing, disappearing particles, you know, that one can have that perspective of as well. It would be weird if it didn't have an impact for you. And if one did work the whole sitting with compassion, that's not wasted, that's really, it's a wonderful opportunity to develop compassion. And it's a wonderful opportunity to develop wisdom. If it's the object of your meditation practice, great. Yeah, but sometimes it isn't. <laughs> yeah, but it, you know. Right, it is. There's um, two little announcements. Are there any questions this morning? Sort of having a problem uh, 
trying to find a middle path between, on the one hand, allowing those thoughts to be there, and on the other hand, just squashing them. And if I allow them to be there, they tend to proliferate and just keep going for the whole period. Uh, if, if I uh, squash them, then uh, it's like a desert in there or something else. What kind, of a, what kind of a desert? <laughs> 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 I shouldn't say desert exactly. It's just that it's like um, you know a drill sergeant telling everybody to shut up. Mm -hmm. Everybody shuts up, but they all resent it. Mm -hmm. So that's more. Yeah, ideally, with planning thoughts, one doesn't have to kill them. One can see them clearly. You know that they're just thoughts and that they're coming and going. And when there's mindfulness, you won't get caught in them. Uh, as you well know, we're not mindful all day. Uh, there are times when the energy goes down and you can't see them clearly. Uh, but I think that firmness really does help when you don't see them clearly. And you, it's not like you have to kill them, but there's that kind of firmness of just saying, not now, coming back, not now, <laughs> later. <laughs> you know, you kind of have to have some flexibility as you get closer to the end around f planning thoughts. So for now, a lot of times I would say not now. And you'll still get overwhelmed at times as you have the whole retreat at times by thought uh, when you can't see it clearly. But that firmness will help at times. There'll be a certain point during the days where uh, that saying not now will be like holding your finger in a dike. You know, and you'll feel the pressure of the future kind of looming in, coming. And then when I feel that happening and I feel like I'm going to lose, you know, that not now isn't going to work, I'll look at my watch or something and say, not now, but after lunch. You know, it's kind of like giving some candy to a kid. <laughs> you know, you just say, you know, uh, you, you kind of make arrangements during the day for when you'll give in to them so that you still have some power. <laughs> you know, you, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to face this. It's just going to, as you get toward the end, you'll, you'll just have to bargain with it at times. And that does help. It does help to say, not now, but later. You see, that gives it some flexibility. And your, sis <coughs> your system will probably buy that for a while. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And then there'll be times where you can't, you know, it's just like you'll see that it just floods over, you'll get caught in it, you'll feel like you're at the beginning of the retreat, that nothing happened, you know, that you have no mindfulness, uh, but then you'll get swamped and then you'll, you, there's so much momentum to this retreat that you'll find that you'll recover again and you'll forget that you ever got swamped. You know, so just do your best to see it clearly, then, um, give it some flexibility, not now, later, and then good luck.
It means that when you choose um, someone that you have a, a sexual relationship with and a close partnership relationship with, that if you start, it's with the metta practice, when you start in the early uh, categories with that person, because uh, self-centered desire or lust is the near enemy of metta, which means that the experience of loving-kindness often can feel like that feeling, but it still has a conditional love in it. So that because that can easily go into that conditional love, uh, one waits for that uh, category until toward the end of doing the metta practice, uh, because the, until the strength of the metta gets stronger, it's easy to go into that self-centered desire, supposedly. I think for some people, it isn't so much of a problem that I notice. For other people, <laughs> it's a big problem. You know, so you kind of have to know yourself and see if you're that type, then I would be careful with it. If it, if it doesn't seem to come up much, then it's usually not a problem. Upandita often will have people uh, toward the end of doing those practices uh, when they want to start bringing a partner in to uh, put the person with five people. So they say you, you pick five people and put that partner in the, that group to start with so that it, it wouldn't be as uh, likely that you'd fall into lust. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, I've been uh, learning a little about rapture as, mm -hmm. a, as an enlightenment factor. Um, and it, it, I mean, a lot of things we keep hearing here is not to go for the highs, you know, that it's not about having. It's great. It's a good question. Um, joy is considered to be the gateway to enlightenment. It's a really important uh, experience, and it doesn't mean that um, we don't experience that high. You know, it's, it, be careful of having a sense that with equanimity, it wouldn't mean that you'd really experience that experience of rapture. Uh, so that it's a very delicate balance actually, of being able to recognize um, the different stages of rapture, which can be so pleasant uh, and blissful, or it can be very, very, very subtle and not so overwhelming, uh, but very refined, but still pleasant. It's important to be able to open to that experience because it is uh, partly how we um, deepen. It's like a gate you go in through to deepen. That what happens for people is there's a tendency to experience it and then really get um, so caught in enjoying it that one doesn't 
have the mindfulness of the enjoyment and it's kind of like a wave that comes up and if one's mindful of it it's like you use that energy that joyful energy and you take that joyful energy to then look at your moment to moment experience from a deeper level it's like riding that wave and sinking in deeper if you get caught in enjoying it uh, and not be mindful of it then it can lead into um, kind of floating, staying high without deepening. That the danger isn't anything in terms of being high. The danger is kind of staying, staying caught in that experience and not going deeper. Be careful of rejecting that experience because it's being said that it's, it's, it's <laughs> something not to get attached to. It doesn't mean that you don't experience it. So some people will hear that, don't get attached to it, and then when that experience comes, they'll push it away, and it, it's a real important experience. So you see that delicacy of letting it come, and then not <laughs> flying away with it, with the enjoyment, but feeling it, and then, you know, it's very subtly just coming back to the moment, coming back to the moment, coming back to the moment with it. It's important. And joy and delight are a really important thing. You know, it's what we, we like. You know, it's important as human beings to be able to experience that without losing balance. Like the wind today. <laughs> yeah. or, or, or throughout the day. Um, any, any thoughts or, or suggestions about how to, to where to look? I keep coming back to sort of the visual sense, but mm -hmm. where, do you, where do you find sound? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, I think that in Vipassana, it's really important to see if you can let the perception happen as it happens. So with sound you can explore that sometimes your attention will really jump very far to where the attention meets the sound. Say it's the wind, it might feel like it's, it's really jumping out there. Other times you might perceive the, the sound brushing the ear door. Other times you might experience sound as just these bubbles of sensation that move through the body. It could, you can experience sound any of those ways. Sometimes it'll feel like the sense doors all sort of melt into each other and you can't even tell. Um, it, it just gets very uh, much like disappearing particles, whether it's a sound, a sight, a smell, a taste. It, it all gets uh, very equal in how one experiences it. Uh, the more you try to control how you perceive, uh, the, the more tendency one would go towards having a preference on how you would perceive and it would develop a habit. Uh, so the more you can let go of control and just let, if the attention jumps out, great. If it brushes the ear, great. If it goes through the body, great. You know, I would be I would be careful of trying to say to you, you know, experience sound in this way. If you're wanting to uh, play with it, 
just like with sight, if you really want to play with seeing and noticing how you're perceiving, it does help to bring the attention to the eyes themselves. Just bring the attention right in. Uh, and to see how you make form. You know, the attention will actually jump out to things and then you bring it back. And then it's just color and shape. And then it'll jump out and it'll create something like me <laughs> here right now. You'll notice it jumps out instead of seeing just the color and the shape. Sound is the same thing. You can bring the attention to the ear door and notice it jumping out, making wind, making a cough, and then just bring it back. It's, it's really interesting. Looks like it's a good winter. <laughs> One more question, yeah. What did you just say about rapture? Reminding me to the conflict I have uh, on one side of the movie. On the other side, you suggest of uh, being willing to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. It fits together. It fits together, but it's not easy. That balance of openness and vul- vulnerability and then being balanced with it is the whole roller coaster ride of opening. And if we could just open, we all want to open, but the little glitch is that there's unpleasant as well as pleasant. <laughs> and that we never know when, what's going to happen. That's the only glitch. <laughs> so, of course, it feels great to be vulnerable until ouch hits, you know, and then we shut down. Uh, so the joy of the, the reason sometimes rapture is hard to experience is because we don't trust. You know, we'll say, well, you know, okay, that's great, but, you know, the pain's coming inevitably. The inevitable pain <laughs> is rolling in, so why should I open? You know, why would I want to open anyway when it's going to hurt so much inevitably? And that's the question one has to answer. Your koan. <laughs> Have a good day. Any questions this morning? When you have a moment of mindfulness of seeing clearly, uh, it's, it's like it's an awareness with understanding. And that lasts for that moment. And then it, you know, it can disappear. But that moment where you're mindful, that plants like a seed. It's like planting the garden of awareness when you're practicing. Uh, you don't know when you plant a seed when it's, it's going to sprout. Uh, but it will sprout. Uh, so that when you have that thought come back and it 
or any thought arise and you're not mindful of it, at some point that seed of planting the seed of mindfulness that happened before will sprout and there'll be another moment of mindfulness. It's that the trouble is you, know, you don't know when it's going to come. You know, it's part of the vulnerability. It takes a lot of courage to do this practice because you can see that you can't control that. You can do the best you can to be here and every time that you're here (laughs) that plants a seed for being here again. Could you repeat the last sentence? Joy is uh-huh. more like a sense of... I mean, I actually tried singing one day as I was wrong mm-hmm. to see what you know, for me. Mm-hmm. It seemed like really awesome joy. Mm-hmm. I suppose I see that uh, the sense of singing about the blues as a, uh, a way in which one can accept them. You know, it's like that moment when one really accepts, say that, that that one has had a difficult life. Or that for most people, life, you know, for the Buddha said that it's hard to be a human being. It's difficult. Uh, any way in which one can, you can imagine to be able to sing that, uh, there's a way in which the singing of it can bring it may not always bring it, but there's like that deep acceptance. And I think of that deep acceptance as joyful. Sometimes you have to sing a couple of songs before, <laughs> before that feeling of joy can come, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, compassion. It's not bad, compassion. (laughs) Compassion's wonderful. You see, the thing about compassion is that it feels wonderful. Uh, And that's what's hard for us, is to remember that, that when when you make that intention to be willing to experience pain, uh, that moment when one isn't filled with grief about it, or one isn't filled with sorrow or pity or, you know, however one's relationship to pain happens or cutting off. But that place of being able to care about pain, the, the Brahma-viharas feel wonderful. They're called divine homes. You know, there's a reason why they're called divine homes. Um, it's because that moment when you touch into that compassion the feeling is one of um, pleasantness. It's not one of pain. Uh, so that, you know, that kind of, that's the joy. Yeah.
so going back out, so sort of beginning to prepare to have to take in a lot of outside world and not really wanting to slip entirely back into old habits of defenses and wondering about cultivating maybe more skillful or less harmful <laughs> defenses. Um, the question is about uh, the feeling of uh, the imminent <laughs> going back into the world and wondering uh, about creating more healthy defenses rather than old conditioned habits. That's what we're doing here, actually. You know, that uh, the mindfulness is a new protection. And as much as you can be mindful, that's the uh, amount of being able to let go of old conditioned habits. And so what tends to protect us is aversion and attachment or delusion. Uh, those are the condition protections. And then mindfulness is a great protection. Also, the Brahma Viharas are a powerful protection. I think that if there's, like for example, uh, the equanimity practice <laughs> uh, is an incredible protection. I mean, they're all powerful protections. You might, for all of you, might you might look at the Brahma Vihara you feel weakest in, and then uh, practice that as you come toward the end. You know, so usually people are tend toward the metta. Uh, compassion, mudita side, or they tend toward the equanimity side. Uh, there's that sense of somebody having an ease with feeling more detached. Uh, for that person, I'd say do more of the metta, compassion, mudita, because that would be more of a protection, because uh, that's where you would be weak. If you tend toward that warm, <laughs> connecting side, but it's really difficult to be detached, then I would recommend doing that toward the end because that's where you would have the most difficulty. That's our uh, only protection. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. I was wondering if you would uh, speak a little bit about <clears throat> mindful resting. Because um, I, I find that that period right after lunch is the biggest thing. What happens? Um, even if I go to my room and just am quiet in my room, um, it's the point at which the mindfulness pretty much drops and I just proliferate and think. For how long? <laughs> I mean, you know, if I, if I lie down for a nap, it's proliferating until I fall asleep. Do you try? Not particularly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, you know. <laughs> the, when we take a holiday, you, you can't really call that mi mindful resting. I mean, Sometimes that's the amount, you know, if you look at your day, sometimes that's all you can do and you can't be mindful in it. Um, 
but you, if you want to be mindfully resting, then there needs to be that intention to cut through that habit. You know, there's a real habit that we have when we lie down to go to sleep to just go off into thinking. Um, if you want to lie down, you know, it could be that if that's an energy leak and you don't feel tired, it could be that you do walking there. Um, if you want to lie down and there's an intention to be mindful, there's all kinds of things, all kinds of practices. Uh, I think a good one is just being aware of hearing for a while, you know, then lying, feeling the whole body lying there, then feeling the hands. Um, doing something where you have a pattern that might be um, stronger to be, be with in the breath. You know, just hearing, <laughs> laying, touching, hearing, laying, touching. You know, some people put their hand on their heart center and their abdomen and just feel the movement of the breath into those areas. There's ways that you can try to cut through that uh, and if the breath doesn't work, you know, or sound breath, or just being there trying to be choicelessly aware, I think it helps to have something pretty s- strong to cut through that pattern. But the intention does have to be there. <laughs> mm-hmm. What was it? Did you say glitches? What? Uh huh. What are the benefits in going back to the world of recognizing non-self? Um, <laughs> happiness. Uh, <laughs> Freedom, you know. <laughs> Minor details like that. <laughs> I mean, the more you recognize that, uh, you know, however you want to frame that, you can take the point of view that uh, we're not a separate self, and that any time you identify with this territory here of being a separate I, it needs protection. And that's where aversion and attachment come in and all of our struggles for... Uh, the, the, it's like the misperception causes us all the suffering. So it's not like we're changing anything. I would really try to see that as we come toward the end of having a spirit of beginning again. Because nothing is going to change except that you won't be as protected here in terms of the environment. But every moment is equally valuable to pay attention to. And this moment here in the hall is no different than when you open your door to go home or when you get on a bus. Or you know, It's like nothing changes in terms of uh, the possibility of being free in that moment and being happy. You know, this is all about the Buddha taught so that we could be happy. And nothing, absolutely nothing changes. It's just each moment we have that possibility to be free. Or each moment we have the possibility to be lost. 
those are the only choices we have. It's just two choices. Sim and it's really simple. You're either lost or you're here. And that, as you can see, <laughs> you know, that happens uh, here on the retreat, and it's going to happen when you leave. Uh, and what we're doing here is trying to plant those seeds of being here as much as we can. So that intention will get the commitment, the intention gets stronger and stronger. Hmm. Keep going, you know, it's uh, really worthwhile, you know, this freedom. <laughs> you know, this, this is uh, an incredible thing to be able to do. Okay. I'll give a great. I'll give an example that happened to me yesterday. I had to go to Boston. I had to go into this hospital, and there was an elevator that the doors shut. I mean, I'm, I mean, I feel like I'm in and out of this retreat world, but I still feel pretty quiet. And going into Boston, it's pretty crazy. And then this hospital, it just seemed like even the elevator doors were going really quickly. Like, you could hardly get in <laughs> before they would shut. And there were these really old people that were sick, and they kept getting, it kept shutting on them. And so I was like grabbing them to open them and, and kind of pushing them to go in. And this woman started screaming at this man in the elevator because he didn't hold the door open for her. And they got into this almost a fist fight. Like on the, on the way up, they were blaming each other for this elevator door. You know, and if I started getting involved and in taking all that personally, you know, if you see that as, you know, somehow, you know, I could, it was so funny because the man looked at me and he said, Is it my fault? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I said, No. <laughs> really not your fault, you know. It's the elevator door, you know, but they were so, it's like they couldn't see that it was the elevator door. It was, it was incredible, you know, and they were suffering so much over this, you know, it's like they left there and they both felt miserable about themselves, just miserable. You know, having a sense that that's totally impersonal, you know, really being able to see clearly that that was just you know, the elevator door. <laughs> you know, that's just a little example. <laughs> Have a good day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.